Hey guys, welcome to episode 126 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope you're all doing well, and we'd like to thank you for all the love and support that you've shown us over the past two weeks. The comments you've been leaving and the reviews have been hilarious and really sweet. So we just wanted to let you know that we love you all and we appreciate it. So I know that you've been waiting two weeks for a case, and John, this is a nice and long one. So I figured we'd just get right down to it. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Our story begins in Newcastle, Delaware on November 29th, the weekend after Thanksgiving in 1987. So I'm sure Bon Jovi was playing on the radio while a young couple, most likely a couple that has been cooped up in a house with family all weekend long, were finally able to get some alone time. And for that, they were in search of some privacy. They decided to head to the Baltimore Pike Industrial Park. The industrial park was under construction, so during the night, there would be no one visiting the area. Exactly what they were looking for. So they drove around inside for a place to discreetly park. As they were driving, the female passenger pointed out that there was something lying near the curb. At this point, it was around 9.30 p.m. And like many others before them and after them that will find a dead body, they thought it was a mannequin. It's never a mannequin, but I know our minds like to play tricks on us because we don't want to comprehend what we're seeing. So that's why a lot of people always say they think they they always thought it was a mannequin. And then as they get closer, they realize it was a person. Let's also not forget here, mannequins are creepy. I don't know about you guys, but I don't like mannequins. They freak me out. Totally creepy, but more creepy, finding a dead body. I agree with you. So the couple circled back to get a better look at what they thought was an object near the street. As they returned, their car headlights shone on a partially nude, beaten, and mutilated body of a woman. She was dead. Horrified, the couple drove to the nearest phone and called 911 to report what they had seen and where they had seen it. The discovery of this woman's body would haunt the couple for years to come. Who could have hurt someone that badly? But this discovery was only the beginning. The first of five murders that would plague Delaware. The first state had its first serial killer. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. 23-year-old Shirley Ellis lived in Bear, Delaware, with her mother, stepfather, and other members of her family in a townhome that was located within the Brookmont Farm community. It was a working-class neighborhood, and many of the townhomes, like the one that Shirley lived in, were a part of Section 8 subsidized housing for low-income families. Shirley had recently had a revelation regarding the direction of her life. She had, in the past, gotten into trouble with her family for drug use and living a questionable lifestyle, partying too much, things like that. She had also gotten in trouble with the law for prostitution, but that was behind her now, 
and she wanted to focus her time and energy into something meaningful, which was why Shirley decided to start taking nursing classes. And she was all ready to start those classes, uniform and books purchased when she was murdered. So it seemed like nursing would have been the perfect career choice for Shirley, as evident by the last actions of her life. November 29th was spent by Shirley, her sister and stepsister, preparing a meal for visiting family. Once they had all enjoyed their time together around the table, Shirley thought to herself, wouldn't it be nice for her to bring a home-cooked meal to her friend who was in the hospital suffering from AIDS? And remember, this is like during like the middle of the AIDS crisis because we're talking about the, the mid to late 80s. Yeah, what a crazy time. Yes. So it was Thanksgiving time and she thought the meal would be a nice way to kind of rouse their spirits and make them feel like it was also the holiday time at the hospital. Shirley didn't have a car, so she asked her stepsister if she would give her a ride to Wilmington Hospital, which was about 17 miles away from where they lived. The 17-year-old girl had only just gotten her license, so she was nervous to drive on the highway in the dark while it was raining. Shirley understood and told her family that she would just hitch a ride to the hospital. Because she didn't have a car, hitchhiking was actually something that Shirley did often. It was actually something many people did often in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, We've since learned about the dangers of hitchhiking. Her stepsister did say, however, that she would give her a ride to the highway. So when she left the car, she had the meal wrapped with her. She was wearing turquoise sweatpants and a shirt that matched the same color, high top sneakers, and a denim jacket with a pink hood. It was totally the 80s. But the last known sighting of Shirley that night, besides her killer, of course, was the clerk at a convenience store located along the way to the hospital. The 23-year-old had stopped to pick up a pack of cigarettes and roses to bring to her friend in the hospital. It would only be two hours later that her body was found at the industrial park. One of the detectives that would see this case through to the end got the call at 10 p.m. that a body had been found at the industrial park. He had only just been assigned to the major crimes unit, and it would be his first homicide. Imagine that, your first homicide then turns into a case of a serial killer. I feel like everyone, every cop or detective's first case sticks with them can you imagine now i guess a serial killer case is your first case yeah i i feel like when you are a detective your first case is kind of career defining for you and the fact that this was the first case and it was and this is my trigger warning that i'm going to give for this episode because the crimes against these women are extremely violent and they involve torture. So if that's kind of not your thing, it might be a little difficult to listen to these episodes. So it must have been really hard for him for this to be his first case because you're dealing with like the depths of depravity and the worst that a hu- the worst things that a human could be. It's like, boom, working with the FBI, the state police. The, this guy definitely learned it all in his first case. Yeah, seriously, the amount of like experience that he must have gained from this is incredible and it's hard to you know get experience it's all on the job pretty much correct but uh by the way don't worry everyone i am here with you so if you can't handle it i am here 
I will try my best to be supportive. And we're doing this together. So don't worry. John will gasp at least once in this episode. I'm calling it right now. <laughs> Probably. Don't feel obligated to do it now, though. Oh, no, I won't. Only Trust be me. sincere. <laughs> <laughs> now, even though this was his first homicide case, he had been a police officer for several years, of course. But he did say later in interviews that nothing could have prepared him for the sight of Shirley Ellis's body. She was lying about three feet from the curb on the side of the road on her back. Her pants had been pulled down to her knees and her shirt was open, exposing her breasts. It was clear she had undergone torture before she had been killed. The detective noted right away that a murder this violent could not have taken place where they were because the ground surrounding Shirley's body was undisturbed and didn't have any blood on it. But Shirley's entire body was covered in blood. So there's no way there wouldn't have been a transfer to the ground if the murder was committed there. So they right away knew this was a dumping site and this was not the site of the crime. They also noted that the killer didn't even make an attempt to hide the body or what they had done. It was more like they wanted her to be found and they wanted people to know what had been done to her because she was kind of dramatically splayed out. And the following morning, I mean, if this couple hadn't been driving around looking for somewhere private, the following morning construction site crew would have seen this. Yeah, it's kind of um, a bold thing to do, I feel like, if you're a serial killer, to just put a body in the open and not care. Like, you got to think, they they had to physically put that body there. Right. To not have a care in the world about getting caught just shows how, like, brazen and bold this person is. And non-remorseful. Yeah. And what had been done to Shirley Ellis had been horrible. Because of the posing, state, and positioning of her body, the first thought that went through detectives' minds was that she had been sexually assaulted. However, the rape kit that was performed post-mortem during the autopsy would reveal one day later that she had not been sexually assaulted. Not in the traditional sense. It appeared that the victim did undergo a form of sexual torture, but had not been physically raped. Shirley had a number of defensive wounds on her body, as well as ligature marks around her wrists and ankles. The bottom portion of her legs were cut and bruised badly, most likely from fighting her restraints. She also had significant bruising on her face, hands, and knees. One of her nipples had been mutilated and almost ripped off by what must have been plier-like object, based on what the medical examiner said. Similar pinching impressions and cuts were left on her stomach and above her left breast. It appeared that she had been strangled using a thin object, most likely a zip tie, but the strangulation had not been her cause of death. Her killer strangled her almost to the point of death, but wanted to ensure more suffering. Her cause of death had been three savage blows to her head. These blows were made by a cylindric-type object, most likely a hammer. She had been hit so hard that her skull crushed under the pressure and splintered into her brain. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, way to start off uh, quick here, Kay. Yeah, the, right away. Yeah. Sorry, guys. 
First 10 minutes. That is insane, actually. Yeah. My poor woman. And what she suffered and why this case and all the other cases is going to... I mean, whenever there's a serial killer, it's going to strike fear in the heart of the community, right? It's a, it's a crime against humanity and the community at large. But these women were undergoing our worst nightmare, being tied up helplessly by your wrists and your ankles and you can't move and a man is torturing you and then he's strangling you, letting you come back and then he's still torturing you and it's like you're at a point where you almost wish he would just just kill me and then he does and he does in such a brutal devastating way it's seriously like a real life hostile it is oh my god and at first the detectives didn't know about the mutilation that had taken place because there was so much blood from the head wounds that blood covered her body so they couldn't see that she had been pinched at her stomach on top of her breast and and her nipple had been mutilated they hadn't seen that at first but obviously they learned that through the report of the medical examiner during the time of the attack the killer had duct taped Shirley's mouth closed, but before he dumped her body, he ripped off the duct tape, but had forgotten a piece of duct tape that got caught in her hair. So all of this information was revealed to detectives through the medical examiner the following day, and they were lucky to have that piece of duct tape because it showed them that that's how he had to keep them quiet. So he didn't have a place of complete isolation to be doing these crimes. That's a really good observation. Mm-hmm. You know what I was going to say, too? Um, I mean, maybe this ha- will have no relevance, but if you think about it, all these tools that he's using to, mu- to to torture her and mutilate her and do all these things, they're kind of like all tools that you would find in the toolbox. You're right. So I would wonder, like, think about it. If it's cylindrical and it is a hammer, let's just say, okay. let's go with that. So, like, you're thinking about, like, the hammer, the pliers... You got zip ties, um, the tape. I feel like these are all things to like repair things. And it's interesting because where was she dumped? Well, on the on the street there. But on a construction site. Yeah. So I wonder. Like I, I'll make that observation that it seems like it would be tools. Okay. So maybe there could be some. There could be something to that. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. And also, oh yeah, and the, um, where the body was found, that's where uh, this Baltimore industrial area. There, it's at a construction yeah. site right now. Yeah, so that's a lot of work that's going on there. Yeah. That's hmm. why I mentioned it. Okay, I know. I'm sorry. It's but okay. this is interesting. No, but that's, these yeah. are really good observations because it gives us clues as to who this person could be. And we'll talk about that later on, too. So you made a really good observation. Good job, John. Thanks. So, like I said, this was all shocking information. Obviously, they knew this had been a brutal murder. But to hear these details from the medical examiner was shocking to detectives but now they knew the pain and suffering that Shirley Ellis had felt in the last moments of her life at the hands of her sadistic killer there was no other way to explain how the Ellis family felt about the tragic loss of Shirley other than devastation they had been so proud of her she had begun to pick up the pieces and was headed towards a fresh new start as 1988 approached. She had a bright future, and he'd stopped her from ever reaching her full potential. And you have to think, she was only 23 years old. So that is the beginning of her life, you know. I know that 
you kind of started a little bit earlier in the 1980s. And this is a time where most likely she would have been graduated from college. But she was figuring her life out and she was going on a great path. And he had stopped this. So they were all so upset. But none more than Shirley's mother, Nancy, who would eventually have to move from the area because she couldn't take the memories or the pain of having lost her daughter in the area. That's really sad. But the problem with the Shirley Ellis case was that it was cold before detectives even got to the scene of her body. The only physical piece of evidence they had was a piece of duct tape that had stuck to the victim's hair, but there were no witnesses and no other clues. Their theory was that a stranger had picked up Shirley, overpowered her, tortured and killed her, and then left her at this location that her body was found at. It could have been anyone, and that person could be anywhere. The dumping site was just minutes away from I-95, which travels the length of the east coast of the United States, from the state of Maine to the state of Florida. So really the only thing they could take away from this is that the person that committed this crime was sadistic, and they could be local, or they could at this point, two hours later, be in Virginia or North Carolina. That is true. Or New England. Like, they didn't know. So, like I said, the only thing they truly knew was this person was sadistic. And those type of killers are rare, and they most likely will kill again. But other than that, they had no information to go on. Also, something I do want to say about the murder. Sometimes when I do research, um, Shirley is referred to as a prostitute, and they implied that she had been working when she was picked up. However, we know that that's not the case. She was attempting to turn things around. She was starting to prepare for school and she was headed to the hospital. So she was hitchhiking. The fact that she had been arrested for prostitution in the past is just that. It was in her past. So I just want to send that message out because sometimes it does get misreported that she was um, doing sex work that night and that's not the case. Well, sometimes I feel like it's there's people out there that like to create that narrative because just yeah. it just fits what's, you know, like your normal crime, right? Like, oh, you know, the murderers targeting prostitutes. Like if that's the narrative that they're trying to spin, that that's what they're going to say about her. Exactly. Because I think sometimes, of course, society likes to say that because, well, it's the women that are putting themselves in these positions that get murdered. And then it makes everyone else feel safe that isn't doing the wrong thing, quote unquote. Yeah, but that whole I the that whole idea is wrong. You know what I mean? Correct. Because like you know, prostitutes aren't getting books and uniforms and stuff to turn their life around to be a nurse. Right. I completely agree with that. Like she obviously was doing like trying to better her life and do the right thing. So Leah, let's definitely make that a point. Yeah, because I just don't want to take that away from her or have it be misreported as such. Plus. We also have to know that and we're not saying that it means anything negative in being a sex worker. They're actually some of the most vulnerable people in our society. And they are often preyed upon by people like this because they know that no one's going to be looking into their murders. And this wasn't the case in this situation. Like John said, I think it's just a narrative that's perpetuated because of her past and her past arrest. And we know that she was trying to hitchhike to the hospital in at this night. So because they didn't have a lot to go on, they did 
not want the public to be in fear. So investigators kept a lot of the details of Shirley's case a secret. In reports to the media, it is only said that she suffered multiple traumas. They do not discuss what had actually happened to her body. If they found the killer, they wanted to confirm it with details because they didn't have much else. So they don't want someone to confess to the murders. And if they don't know about the mutilation, then they know it's not them. It's a tactic that's often used by law enforcement. They also didn't want to make things any harder for the victim's family, who was already besides themselves with grief, as you can imagine. But before we get any further, we're going to take a quick break here to talk about our first sponsor of the show. Okay, let's get back to the show. So where we left off, the case of Shirley Ellis seemed to have gone cold, despite the fact that it had just happened. And it would remain so, with no advancements or leads for seven months, until there was another murder. Fox Run was to be the future site of apartments and townhomes. But on June 29, 1988, it was just a construction zone located off of Route 40, near Route 72, and less than half a mile away from a state trooper station. Crews worked tirelessly to have the site completed as quickly as possible, which was why they had arrived early at 6 a.m. to begin work. In the dirt, as soon as they made a right into the construction zone from Route 72, they found the body of a woman. It was hard to make out anything except the fact that she was nude and had been savagely beaten. The workers called 911 and first responders and detectives on duty arrived at the scene quickly. This was not the first homicide for the 10-year veteran that arrived at the scene. But as soon as he got there, he knew that this murder was different than any other he had come across. Now, I just want to stop here and just mention the reason why we're working with um, different detectives. We're working with different law enforcement. The scene of the first discovery of the body was actually under the jurisdiction of the state police. And this site is under the jurisdiction of the Newcastle, Delaware police. So now because the two cases will intersect, these two detectives will work together. And that's how you have a joined task force of state and local police between these two detectives. I mean, it can't hurt. No. And they also become really good friends through working. Obviously they work this case for a very long time. So this detective who is veteran, like I said, 10 years on the job, he knew this was something that he had never come across in his career. The victim was found lying on her back in a contorted position. Her right leg was underneath her body and bent outward, almost touching her arm that was splayed out beside her. She had ligature marks on her wrists, ankles, and neck. Her hair was so saturated with blood, they couldn't even clearly identify what type of hair she had. But what they did know was what had killed her by the looks of the blood that covered her entire body. Blunt force trauma to the head. She also had deep bruising on her breasts and one mutilated nipple. The killer had not tried in the slightest to hide the body or what he had done to this poor woman. It was the detective's opinion that he actually wanted her body found. 
as evident by the way her arms had been outstretched and her leg grotesquely lie beneath her. It was also evident that this woman had not been killed at this location because of the lack of blood in the dirt. It was only all over her. Now, as they're looking at the case and kind of processing the crime scene, something's going to click with this detective. And he remembers reading about another case that was very similar to the body that he was looking at right then. And that was the case of Shirley Ellis. And this woman seemed to have suffered from the same fate as she had. Blunt force trauma to the head, the ligature marks, the mutilation. So to confirm that it was similar as quickly as possible, the detective actually called the state police and asked for the detective that was working the Ellis case to come down and look at his crime scene because he knew that detective had seen the first crime scene. That's smart. Yes, very smart and very proactive here. They're not trying to avoid the fact that this could be a serial killer. They're embracing it so they can solve it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I want to drop a red flag here because I'm I'm making a connection as well. I'm the other detective. Okay. Um, I'm making uh, <laughs> a, a connection between this. I, I know we talked about like a, the first one was at a construction site, right? I'm and this one too. And this one too. So I'm gonna say that this person works construction and probably works between the hour uh, the hours of the midnight shift. Not night shift because night shift's different. Midnight shift is is different. You started you started normally it's around three three thirty and you end around one o'clock. That's the that's the nighttime because they're dumped in the middle. Of the yeah, night. the graveyard shift. That's like yeah. it's in the middle. So. I'm thinking that that's the case because I don't know where this person's like doing the crime, but obviously he knows what times that he could put the body there because if those construction workers at the second uh, dumping place came in at six, that body's cold. That had to be done probably at the end of this person's shift yeah, or somehow is doing this and he knows the time that he could do it. Because he's like, this person's probably like, I know that the, this construction starts at this time. So now I would start compiling of lists, uh, a compile a list of all the construction companies at these two sites, right? And who's working. And then who's working at the graveyard shift and the nighttime shift. Okay. Right? Or, or you know, midnight shift and, and, and the daytime shift and figure out if this can, if they can kind of narrow it down from there. This is good detective work. Yeah. Detective that, John. Like that's exactly what's happening here. Okay. That's the connection. Okay. So, when the second detective, the one from the first crime scene, arrived at the case, they said the similarities were uncanny and they believed it was the same person that had killed both Shirley Ellis and now this woman. The first detective actually described it as being a carbon copy of not just the murder, but the dumping scene. Very interesting. Yes. Crime scene techs worked hard to collect every piece of evidence they had at the scene. I know this sounds horrible, and they don't necessarily know that they have a serial killer yet, but I know this is sad because you want to prevent these things from happening. But each, I want to be careful how I say this, each crime scene becomes an opportunity for the killer to mess up. And... The detectives were hoping he would mess up as quickly as possible because the only time they have the opportunity to catch this guy is when he kills. 
it's an unfortunate you know what I mean? thing in when you're trying to find out who's doing this. Yeah, you don't want him. You don't want another victim to fall to this person, but another victim means another opportunity for him to screw up and for you to possibly collect more information and evidence against him and trying to determine who he is. Yeah, so you could stop the next possible murder. Correct. So there were no clothes near the body or anywhere on the construction site. She had been completely dumped in the nude. So there were no witnesses because no one was allowed to be there at night, like the first scene. However, two interesting things were found. One was tire marks that were found at the scene near the body. So now we have tire marks. We could potentially find out what kind of vehicle this person was driving. The other thing was there were blue fibers all over the victim's body. It seemed that the blue fibers were kind of adhering to her body because of all of the blood. So she was killed somewhere where these blue fibers were also present, most likely on a blue carpet. Oh, wow. Okay. Now it came time to identify the body, hopefully as soon as possible, because she needed to be sent in for an autopsy. So the first thing they did was look into missing persons cases, but no one really matched the description of the woman. When the autopsy was completed, it was seen that some dental work had been done. They believe that this was a local woman, so they checked local dentist offices. Through dental records, their victim was identified as 31-year-old Catherine DeMauro. Kathy, as she was known by her friends and family, was a 31-year-old divorced mother of three. Where she lived at the Greenfields Manor Apartments was actually only one mile from where Shirley Ellis lived. That's also interesting. So that this guy has to probably be local as well. Yeah, this person has his stomping sounds, grounds. I was gonna say oh, I was gonna say something worse than that. It sounds sick, but his hunting grounds. Yeah. And he knows exactly where he picks up and he knows where he drops off. Correct. And the time to do it. Yeah. According to information gained through interviews, detectives were able to figure out that Kathy had spent most of her day at her family's bakery, which was located on Route 40. She was there until about 5 p.m. Just before her mother left the store, she said goodbye to her mother. I'll see you later, were her last words to her. Her mother stated that her daughter left the store wearing stonewashed jeans and a pink sweater. From there, Kathy walked to a nearby Wendy's where she ate a salad for dinner. Her parents left their bakery at around 9 p.m., and when they did so, they saw their daughter standing at the corner of Route 40. They had to run into a store before heading back home, and they agreed that when they went back, if they saw Kathy again on the corner still, they'd give her a ride. But by the time they passed, she wasn't there. So again, it's someone going missing on Route 40. Life for Kathy DeMauro had not been easy. On top of working at the family bakery, she also operated a lunch wagon at the construction site in Newcastle County. She had lost custody of her three children, and she was struggling to pay the bills, even with the two jobs she worked. To help her with the rent, she allowed a man by the name of Kenneth Fowler to stay with her at her apartment. He slept on the couch. When the detective spoke with Fowler, he told them that Kathy had come home around 10.30 p.m. So 
this is kind of good. I think it's good for the family to know when they saw Kathy at 9 p.m., she had not been picked up by her killer. She did get home at 10.30 p.m., so she was picked up by somebody who gave her a ride home. Okay. Which is good and makes you feel better because they didn't feel like they could have done something like, oh, if we didn't go to that store. The the roommate said she went home around 10.30 p.m., and then she went back out. She was only home for a short amount of time. Fowler was never under any suspicion because of an alibi that he had. But when asked what Kathy was like, he stated that Kathy was very withdrawn. She was an eccentric woman who spent much of her time in her room. The last time Kathy DeMauro had been seen was at around 11.30 p.m. on Route 40, just outside her apartment building. And it was the following morning that her body had been found. This tragic event would have a profound effect on Kathy's family. Although dental records confirmed that it was Kathy, a family ID was needed. But when her parents were shown Kathy in the morgue, they couldn't recognize her because she'd been so savagely beaten and where she was hit in the head with the hammer um, disfigured her face. That's one of the saddest things yeah. I'm sure that you have to go through. It's imagine that you have to ID your child, but you can't even do it. Yeah. Oh God, that poor family. So the knowledge of what happened to his daughter and seeing her the way that he had to destroyed Steven Skocek. He would not speak with anyone after his daughter's death and to pass the time and most likely contemplate what had happened, he would go on walks for hours. Kathy's father would die of a heart attack just hours before his daughter's mass. That's so sad. That is sad. It's just, you know, like, he, like, died of a broken heart. Yeah. You know? Like, immediately. Immediately. Because I guess they thought maybe we could have helped our daughter. She also, she was struggling with the bills tremendously. And she did turn to sex work at times so they were thinking he must have been thinking what if we did this what if we helped you know it's always the what ifs you know when it comes to things like this um and that's kind of why she had lost she lost custody of the children she was in a really bad emotional place and they were they were still close she still worked at the bakery with them and it just devastated him what had happened to his daughter and what she had to go through in the last moments of her life yeah, it's horrible. And it was too much for his heart to take. Now, if this was the same man, the detectives were worried. Two detectives from both crime scenes were working the case together, and they were worried because this person, the sadistic killer, he'd escalated his crimes. Yes, in general, things were the same. Mutilation, the ligature marks, the three skull-crushing blows to the head, But the medical examiner let them know that this murder was more brutal and cruel than the one before. Kathy's nipple had been more badly mutilated and almost entirely ripped off. And her breast was swollen and bruised from beatings and torture. The medical examiner was also able to determine what tool had been used for the mutilation. And it was wire cutters. Oh, 
Oh my god. So that's okay. different. At first they thought it was pliers, but yeah. wire cutters are a plier-like tool, but they're very sharp. Yeah, they're made to cut. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So, oh. So that's what was used in the mutilation and torture of these women. No. Okay. <laughs> Can I put another red flag? Okay. Okay. I might be going into this too much, but let's just let's just see how this goes. A wire cutter you can narrow down now if it's someone in construction because there's only like two trades that really use that. And that's an electrician mm-hmm. or um, a wire lather that deals with like um, steel. Okay. When they tie up steel bars for concrete bores and laying down floors for concrete, it's used to tie up to it's a metal wire tie everything together. Okay. So like those two trades would use a snip like tool like that. Like that. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. The medical examiner was also able to determine Kathy's face and body had also been badly beaten. Um, They didn't see as much beating on the first victim as they did on the second one. So it seemed like his rage and anger were escalating. Her legs, like Shirley's, showed signs of massive struggle. Um, It seemed like she was trying to put up a fight against her attacker while also trying to get herself out of the restraints. The same size weapon had been used to crush her skull. And the same thing. It was such a hard blow that parts of the woman's skull splintered into her brain. It's just insane. That is, yeah, that is insane. I mean, that is incredible force. I mean, I understand this is like a cylindrical hammer, let's say. But still, like, that's such great force to do. It's crazy. Wow. So the medical examiner went on to tell detectives that based on the bruising patterns, both of these women were alive while they were tortured. Nothing happened after their death. However, they had not been sexually assaulted, nor was any semen found on the bodies, which is difficult because usually that's how you can narrow down suspects. DNA was, of course, in its infancy during this time, but you would have been able to tell if someone was a discreter or a non-discreter And you could potentially figure out their blood type at least. But there was no semen to examine. It appeared that the person that was committing these crimes was getting sexual gratification from the torture itself. He was a real sadist. This was a serial killer. And the detectives felt far outside their scope of knowledge. So they reached out to the FBI. One of the detectives, the second one who had been on the, you know, he'd been a detective for 10 years, was actually friendly with a man by the name of Jim Zopp. Zopp was an FBI agent and a profiler in the behavioral sciences unit out of the Baltimore offices. And for me, it was so interesting to see his name again because I actually read something a while back for one of our Patreon cases. It was a school shooting on a Native American reservation. And there was a... Um, a document that I read, it was called School Shooter, a Threat Assessment Perspective from the FBI, and Zop was one of the main contributors. That's so cool. So I remember seeing his name. Little connection there. Yes. So the Behavioral Science Unit was given all of the information that had been compiled so far by the investigators. I mean, they were kind of all in. They're like, let's get a profile of this person. Let's figure out who he is. Let's have the FBI assist us in this. And they were more than happy to do so because anytime the behavioral science unit can study a serial killer is good for them because it's more tools in their belt. 
No pun intended. Yeah. So all the information was given to Zop and the behavioral science unit in the Baltimore office. And it was kind of like nothing but something all at the same time. They had a killer that had a specific victimology, women in their 20s, early 30s, trying to get rides on Route 40 one way or another, an MO when it came to their murders, a very specific MO, and a way that he dumped the bodies. In the way of evidence, they didn't have much, but in the way of MO and what this guy did, they had a lot. The only true physical evidence they have is the tire marks and the blue fibers at this point. Now... After reviewing all of this information, Zop and a few other agents were ready to go over a profile and a recommendation to the police of Delaware. Now, by definition, this person isn't technically a serial killer yet because only two women have been murdered. By definition, a serial killer is three murders. Now, because of that, he... When field offices from the BAU are contacted by local law enforcement, they do an assessment, they give a profile, and they give recommendations. If this person is a serial killer, it's like it fits all the criteria, then they would notify the head office at Quantico. And that's when he would potentially contact the head the person in charge of the behavioral science unit, which at the time was John Douglas, who is like famous for writing Mindhunter. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, and like the character Holden on the show Mindhunter is based off of him. So he's like the guy. Yeah. So because it wasn't technically a serial killer, he's not contacted, but they deliver this profile because it was clear that he would become a serial killer. It is most likely that this man will attack again. So the profile that they deliver was as follows. Their suspect is most likely a white male in his 20s to early 30s. Most serial killers statistically are. And they believe that he would have a macho attitude and was most likely into S&M porn. They would be likely to find it at their house when they search the person's house. And he more likely than not Worked in construction. Ah. Look at you, John. And they give the same reasons you did. Because he's using tools that he's comfortable with and leaving bodies at locations he might have or might still work at. Yeah. Look at you. That's my construction background kicking in. (laughs) So they believed that he probably worked within five miles of where the bodies were found. They also believed that he was in a relationship with a woman and he was either abusive or problematic in that relationship. They also guessed that he committed his crimes in a van or large vehicle. The FBI also reminded them that they weren't looking for Charlie Manson. They were looking for someone who was average. He would blend in with the crowd. That was their man. That's who they were looking for. They were looking for an average Joe, a needle in a haystack. The detectives asked the agents what they could do to prevent there being a third murder, and they were advised to do two things. First, while still keeping all of the details close to their chest, they should have a press briefing to alert the public to the dangers of being alone on the highways of that area. Secondly, their best bet in catching this guy would be to put out a decoy, 
an undercover agent to try and pick him up. The first task was easy. They scheduled a press briefing and stated that Kathy DeMauro had died in a similar fashion to Shirley Ellis, and they are exploring the idea that the two murders were related. In the meantime, they cautioned young women to not hitchhike or walk along the highways. The press, of course, went wild with the idea of a serial killer, and they named him so many things, but what seemed to stick was the Route 40 killer. In reading old newspapers, it appeared that Shirley's stepfather, frustrated with the stagnation of the investigation, did tell the press that his stepdaughter was beaten severely. So that piece of information was leaked to the press. Yeah, that's unfortunate that that had to leak. But, like, you have to understand the frustration of the family. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, to not blurt something out like that is probably, like, almost impossible. Oh, 100%. The only thing that I'm that I'm th- you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but the way I'm looking at this, if you want to catch this guy, right? There's two theory. I'm sure there's two ways of looking at this. The first thing is, I would totally send the decoy on Route 40, right? But I wouldn't have let the public know that. And I know it sounds weird, but the reason for that is because I want my decoy out on Route 40, so he just continues to do his same pattern. Well, no, they they're not telling them about the decoy. No, 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 I know, but like by saying, be careful on Route 40, this is what's going on, it's going to make him either change up his, you know, change up the way he does things, which makes him harder to catch. I see what you're saying. They should put the decoy out because he'll just follow the same patterns that he's been following, which will make him be, which makes him easier to be caught. I think you're right on track with what you're saying, and I totally agree with you. But we're also going under the assumption that people are going to listen to warnings from police. Sure. But now here's the flip side now. By doing it the way that the professionals did it, there is a good part of it. By him being afraid to maybe pick somebody up on Route 40, he'll do something else and mess up. They're also lowering the traffic then on Route 40 of people. So that means he's more likely to then approach their decoy. I see. There's a lot. I guess there's lots of... uh... It could go one way or the other. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to look at it. Okay, so before we go any further, we're going to take a break to talk about our second sponsor of the show. Okay, so where we left off, the state and local law enforcement agencies in Delaware were working together on the case of two murdered women with the FBI. And now they are going to work to complete the second recommendation they were given by the FBI's behavioral unit, set up a decoy. They needed to find a young female police officer that they could use as a decoy. As a woman who would walk Route 40 and pose as a sex walker or someone trying to hitchhike. And this would allow her to repeatedly be on the same stretch of land without arousing suspicion. They chose to recruit rookie officer Renee Lano, who has since been married and now her name is Renee Tashner. She had only been on the force for six months, but was excited for the opportunity to work a homicide investigation, especially in conjunction with the state police and FBI. I mean, that's wonderful for someone's career six months out of the academy. Totally. I mean, that must be scary, but I mean, you've made it this far, right? You're you're a police officer, you know. Yeah. Scary. A lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. I, I do feel... Like they felt very confident in her because she had a 
they went through a lot of other officers first. Um, some of them flat out said no. One tried it for a little bit, but then got too nervous and wanted to stop. But Lano had this street smart about her that made her the perfect decoy. But it is a lot of pressure for someone who is a rookie officer and really doesn't even have their feet wet in police work. Yeah, that's true. But that also speaks volumes to her intelligence and the type of police officer she is and would later become. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that's courage, like straight up courage. So Officer Lano would walk up and down Route 40 and wait at corners looking like she was trying to get a ride. They also had her dress as the same as the victims did. So she wasn't like, I know what people think. They, she's dressed up as like um, in short skirts and high heels. She was dressed just as the other women were casually. So to not like arouse suspicion or not make it look like this was so obvious. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. She was wired and the detectives working the case were always listening in. The young officer was told that her job was to get men who stopped talking, what their name was, what they did for a living, and then she was to report back any license plates of anyone she thought to be suspicious or anyone that they wanted to know the license plate of. But there was one clear rule for her. Do not get in the car with anyone. Equipped with a special purse that had a pocket that allowed her to discreetly have her hand on her gun and her gun aimed at whoever she was talking to, Officer Lano spoke to many men, each time trying to get as much information as she could. For weeks and weeks, she repeated the same thing nightly or every other night. Really, it was like four times a week they had her go out. Yeah, I mean, eventually you're going to get something, right? Yes. Um, But, you know, for weeks and weeks, they didn't get anything unusual. The detectives, though, were confident about the killer not being active yet because they figured if he was being active, he surely would have seen her and would have stopped to talk to her. But and that's because she was just making herself easy pickings. However, their elusive killer was smarter than they thought. He knew that Route 40 was crawling with state county and local law enforcement so he chose a different roadway to stalk his prey on august 22nd 1988 a third woman went missing 27 year old margaret lynn finner she was a mother to two young boys on that night she went in to kiss her two boys goodnight and she told them that she would see them later unbeknownst to her family Margaret, who was a recovering cocaine addict, had returned to sex work as a way to earn the funds necessary to pay the bills as a single mother of two. That night, she would not return home. Her family called the police as soon as she didn't come home the following morning. But because of her history and the fact that she was an adult, they were told to call back after 48 hours. Like they figured, oh, she just maybe had a relapse yeah that's sad so her mother and father called back as soon as the time had passed they knew their daughter would not have left them and especially not her sons when she was reported missing the case was immediately brought to the attention of the detectives who were working the route 40 killer case they learned that margaret had been last seen standing on the highway outside of the old general wayne inn near Hare's corner 
a witness, her friend, saw her get into a blue Ford windowless van with round headlights. The witness said they could not make out the details of the person driving the van, but she could tell that it was a man. This tied in with the fact that where Margaret had been seen last was only five miles away from where the other two women had gone missing, made the detectives believe that Margaret may have fallen victim to their killer, which was something they were upset about because they feel like he had gotten away with murder right under their noses. Now we're seeing this like cat and mouse game develop between the police and the serial killer. See, but this is why I I said that, and I look, I'm not a professional. Obviously, this event has happened and we're learning about it. But this is why I I mentioned by them telling people, be careful out there. There's a serial, there's a killer on the loose. He he prowls Route 40. He probably heard that on the radio or or TV or somebody maybe you know at work or whatever mentioned, hey, there's a lot of police activity over here, and he's in the back of his mind saying, yeah, they're looking for me. And now, I'm and gonna now go he's going to go somewhere else. And that's why I was trying to say, just put the decoy there and not say anything at all and try to do that because you probably would have nabbed them there as a, a good possibility. The fact that th- he felt like they were onto him got him scared enough to go on another roadway. And I agree with you. And I think that that's why we see less and less press briefings when it comes to law enforcement believing they may have a serial killer on their hands because i think over time we've learned like what you're saying don't alert people even though it does make things a little bit more dangerous for people but it also makes it harder to catch the serial killer if he knows they're being suspicious yeah especially now right like nowadays it's even that much better because if nothing said we have the technology, we have the, the testing and everything else where, unfortunately, if there's one victim involved, they might even be able to catch this guy before he strikes for, like let's say, a second by not saying anything, just based on, you know, the body of the first victim. Like, it's right. a lot different than the, the 80s here. I completely agree with so, you. So, I mean, that's, that's another reason why they don't say anything now, because they have the manpower and the technology to just solve this. The 11-week search for Margaret Finner was brought to an end when her body was found by two deer hunters. They spotted her body in the reeds of the south bank of the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal, which is only one mile east of the St. George's Bridge. The discovery of Margaret's body was utterly devastating for her family. She, just like Shirley Ellis, had a new lease on life and was turning things around for the better. Margaret, after her divorce, lost custody of her children, but she had gone to a rehab center and had been clean. She also just got a job as a cashier at a local grocery store. She'd been able to get her children out of foster care, and they were now living with herself and her parents. She would often work overtime because she was saving money for her and her children to eventually get a place of their own. Sadly, investigators were not able to definitively prove that Margaret had fallen victim to the Route 40 killer because her body had been so badly decomposed they couldn't search for the telltale signs of mutilation and ligature marks. However, her skull, like the other victims, had been crushed. 
detectives are moving forward with the theory that Margaret had been the third victim. So now they officially had a serial killer on their hands. And they had another clue, which kind of made sense with the other clues. The fibers that had been found on Kathy DeMora were blue. And the van that Margaret had been seen getting into was also blue. And if you know anything about vehicles from the 1980s, you know they were hideously styled to have the same color interior and exterior. I know that from my 1988 red Camry. That was the reddest car that has ever been made. So, and it was very embarrassing to have in 2007. So they really thought, okay, maybe he's committing these murders in a van, which would be how he's picking them up. And it makes sense as to this is where he's committing his crimes and he'd have the space to do so. Yeah. So now more than anything, officer Lano was told to be on the lookout for a blue van. And one day in early September of 1988. Now this is back when the third victim, Margaret was still missing only. So we have to remember that Margaret is going to go missing in August, but her body is not found until November. So this is September now. So it's still while they're searching for almost about a month for Margaret Finner. But at this point, they do know about the blue van because the witness had seen her get into the blue van. So a blue van approached Officer Lano as she was out as a decoy. She tried to talk to the man in the van and ask him questions. His name, if he was married... And because she was asking so many questions, he got a little spooked and asked if she was a police officer. She responded by asking him if he was a cop. And he then kind of felt a little bit better and asked her to get into the van. But she refused and he drove away. But not before she got his license plate. The man that had stopped to talk to the decoy was a local married school teacher. The stop was enough for the detectives to get a warrant to search the home of the teacher. That was a signature happy judge there to get a search warrant for just stopping. Um, So as police officers were searching the home, someone went up into the attic and they found a loose board in the attic floor. And beneath the loose board, they found a lot of porn, specifically BDSM porn. There was also a collection of adult toys that catered to the BDSM community. So they questioned him and found out this man has been living two separate lives, which, as you can imagine, was a bit of a shock to his wife, who was sitting right next to him. Oh, (laughs) that's not good. It turned out he was into the BDSM lifestyle. um, And that isn't necessarily the problem. The problem is that he would carry out all of his fantasies with sex workers and you know would bring these toys with him when he went it's actually interesting um we're remember the whole profile that the fbi gave this guy fits a lot of the uh, a lot of the criteria he's an average guy you he would be unsuspecting he's kind of living two lives and you know you say that about construction you know like this is what the fbi said but you know People are handymen, too, at, at home, you know, doing home projects. Some people might be carpenters by trade, but then they might do something different now, you know? 
yeah, sure. could still be yeah. familiar with tools. So they go to his van that the search warrant included his van and they collect the fibers in his van. But the rug fibers from his blue van did not match the blue fibers that were found on Kathy DeMauro's body. So he in no way could be tied to the murders, so he was let go. Okay. I'm sure he was let go, but the wife probably, you know. Oh, yeah. She probably rained down hell. Yeah. (laughs) To find all that out, and she probably didn't even know about it, you know, at all. In front of other people to find that out, and then they've searched your house. And when they do, like, search warrants for your house, like, they're not casually opening drawers. They're throwing it around, like, messing everything up. (laughs) So now not she's got this destroyed home. Right? Yeah. Her husband has the attic of pleasure. I don't even know what you want to call it. The Fifty Shades of Grey attic. Yeah. And now you know he's got prostitutes all up in his van. Yeah. He's trying to pick them up off the street. Yeah. That probably did not go over well. Probably didn't go over well for his employer either. Probably not. Because he's a teacher. Yeah. Probably not. So this man... Sorry, dude. They stepped in and just destroyed this dude's <laughs> life. <laughs> and then they, they casually walked out. They're like, sorry, ooh, dude. sorry. We'll, yeah, we'll leave you to handle door. this. Yeah. <laughs> Take care. Have a nice day. <laughs> we'll put the board back on the attic floor. Okay. Yep, we'll just <laughs> scurry out of here. But about a week later on September 10th, and just to remind you of the timeline, third victim still not found yet, a fourth victim would be claimed. So on September 10th, 26-year-old Kathleen Ann Meyer got into a fight with her boyfriend. During the dispute, he struck her, making her nose bleed. Wanting to get away from him, she left the house at around 9.30 p.m. This is not the first time that a serial killer has claimed a victim because the victim walked out of the house upset after a fight with her husband or boyfriend. It also happened in Gaffney, South Carolina. Yeah. Don't ever leave the house angry. So she began walking towards Route 40. Investigators theorized that she was possibly trying to get to a payphone so she could call her parents or a friend. Now, Kathleen Meyer actually lived with her boyfriend in the same complex as Shirley Ellis had, but the two women had never met. As she left the complex and began to walk along Route 40, she was approached by a blue van. She got in. And drove off into the night. An off-duty police officer who knew they were looking for a blue van had seen the girl with the bloody nose get into the van. And he thought this was suspicious. So he wrote down the license plate number of the blue van. RV2059. But the problem was that he never reported this information until after that he never reported this information until it was too late and her body had been found. See, I was just, I was going to say, oh, smart, he got the license plate, but I'm glad he didn't. I didn't say that because then he doesn't report it. Report it. I just don't understand that. Can we just talk about that quickly? If you are told to be on the lookout for a blue van, you... That's ha- picking up girls. Right, exactly. You see the bloody nose. There's indications of suspicion. You write the phone... Uh, I was going to say phone number. You write the license plate number down, and then you don't report that in at all? I think he was nervous of being too 
nervous or too suspicious. I don't know. I don't know, man. You have a serial killer. It was a bad call. You have a serial killer in your in your state. He's he's doing he you know it fits the it fits the plan. It fits the car, you know, the van, the what's going on. I don't know why you wouldn't report that. Now at this point, our third victim, Margaret Finner, has been murdered. They just haven't found her body yet. They don't even necessarily know that she's. They think she's a victim because she got into a blue van, and now this woman. But if he would have given that number to police, it could have prevented the death of the fifth victim. Uh, I'm thinking about the word now. He probably didn't want to be like overzealous. Mm-hmm. You know? Good. Good job. Good word. Yeah. You like that? Yeah. But like, you know, but seriously, though, like, I guess that, you know, you still got to do it, dude. That's your job. I know. Come on, man. I know. You dropped the ball. Well, hindsight is twenty twenty when it comes to this stuff. I know, but it makes me angry. Maybe he was thinking, just in his defense, look, we just destroyed this one dude's life. That's okay. We're trying to find a serial killer. Yeah, let's just destroy lives because we need (laughs) secrets to come out because we've got serial killers to find. We're flipping drawers. We're breaking down drawers. Yeah, we're, we're, we're coming for you. We are... Releasing all the BDSM <laughs> porn you have. That's it. We're, we're <laughs> Everyone all your will know out. about your weird restraints that you have yep. in your attic. No one's safe. So now we're going to put this aspect on hold for right now because unfortunately the body of Kathleen Meyer is never recovered. Oh, okay. So we know that she is a victim of this person, of this serial killer, but we'll get back into it a little bit later. But it is while they're looking for the third victim on September 10th that she goes missing, but the one police officer saw her get into a blue van that has that license plate, and that license plate will come up again. So that's how we know for a fact that she was a victim. Okay. Okay. And we're also going to take a break here to talk about our final sponsor of the show. So four nights after the disappearance of Kathleen Meyer and three weeks into the search of Margaret Finner, the decoy found another suspect. At this point, the work she'd been doing as a decoy was putting a lot of strain on Officer Lano. She worked during the day on her regular duty as a police officer and then four nights a week she for hours walked the streets of Route 40. But on the night of September 14th, while standing in front of the White Clay Shopping Center, Lano noticed that a man in a dark blue paneled van drove past her slowly. Then he made a U-turn and passed her again, and again, and again. In total, he slowly drove past her seven times. Lano would later reflect that this was the only time that she was scared while acting as a decoy. And for comfort, she reached out to the detectives. She whispered, honk if you can hear me. And when she heard that horn blare, she instantly relaxed. They were right there. They weren't going to let anything happen to her. She let them know that right away she couldn't get the license plate in the front of this van very, very creepily, um, where the front license plate is. So, like, every state is different with their requirements of license plates. Like, in the state of New Jersey, we're required to have license plate on the front of our vehicle and on the back of our vehicle. 
but a lot of states don't have that where you don't have to have that front license plate. And this guy where that front license plate would have went, he had a license plate, but like airbrushed on it was like rainbows and clouds. You're not even supposed to do that to the license plate. Creepy. Yeah. And then on the back, there was a license plate. Finally, because he had passed her seven times, she said he was a fat guy with a beard and his license plate was RV2059. It's the same license plate. Yeah, but the officer never told. I know. We still won't know this is the license plate that picked up Margaret Finner until November. Oh. And this is September 14th. That's crazy. Yes. So she reports the license plate, but they really want more than the license plate. They want her to talk to him. So they figured that maybe this guy wasn't stopping because she was in front of the shopping center and the shopping center area was so lit. So maybe he was nervous to stop and talk to her. So around 11 p.m., they decided the best thing they could do would be to pick her up and drive her to a darker location. Half an hour later, they were in luck. Their man in the blue van took the bait and started to drive past her again. Into the microphone, she whispered, this guy is weird. And I just want to take a second here to stop and talk about the escalation. He had picked someone up on August 22nd and on September 10th. And now it's September 14th and he's out looking for someone again. His crimes are happening closer and closer together And um, in what profilers say, he might be entering into his frenzied mode where he's just kind of going crazy. Some people call it berserker mode, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that once he's done it a few times at this point, I mean, he already knows what it takes. And he's not satiated anymore. He needs to keep doing it. And he feels safe by doing it. Yeah. I mean, they're not onto him. Yeah. Because he must have felt more comfortable in a darker location The man in the van finally pulled up to Lano. She said later that her stomach was in her throat the whole time. The two began having a conversation, but it was unlike any conversation she had ever had. Usually when men wanted her to get into the car to potentially have sex or be with them, they were nice and joking and, you know, trying to lower her wall, but not this man. He was stone-faced and very short with his responses. Lano had been trained to try and extract as much information as she could from the men that she stopped. So for her, this was like impossible trying to get information, like getting blood from a stone here. At one point, he asked if she was a cop, and she responded the same way she always did. No, are you? But he seemed to be getting agitated with her because she wasn't just getting in the car. So she changed the conversation to his van. She told him how nice she thought it was and how it looked so big and you could live inside of it. And Lana was very aggressive with trying to keep the conversation going. And he was very aggressive about trying to get her in the van. So it was a very tense conversation to listen to. And I can only imagine to be in. She asked him if, she could open the sliding door to see inside of the back of the van because she thought it looked really nice. So he allowed her to do that and he turned on the interior light as she slid the door open. 
and her heart almost stopped when she saw the whole interior of the van was red, white, and blue. And the carpet was all blue. Of course. As she continued to fire off questions to him, she ran her fingers aggressively through the carpet, grabbing fibers and placing them into her purse without him realizing. Oh, my God. Yeah, (laughs) she's good. She managed to get out of him that he was a 34-year-old. Are you ready, John? I'm ready. Electrician. Oh, yes. (laughs) That's crazy. Okay. You're so good. Well, I mean, like I said, construction background. I know. I I narrowed it down. You're a man of the world, John. I try, I try. So he kept telling her that he was getting tired of riding around alone. But Lana was stuck on the van. She asked him about the carpet, why he put blue carpet in there. He told her it came with the van. Uh, Later on, it was determined that it didn't come with the van. He, like, customized it, red, white, and blue on the inside. He's trying to be patriotic. Yeah, I guess. He can totally keep that to himself. (laughs) He asked her for oral sex, and he said he could only pay her $20. Sorry, I know that escalated pretty quickly. Jeez. Uh, (laughs) He asked her for oral sex and said he could only pay her $20 because his old lady had all the plastics. What a 1980s sentence that is. My old lady's got all the plastics. (laughs) I feel like that's how it came out. Is that how? Say that again? My old lady's got all the plastics. Okay. So he couldn't go to the ATM, and that's all he had on him. So he was beginning to get more aggressive with her about getting in the van, and finally Lano was getting nervous that he was becoming so aggressive. And he is a very large man, so he could easily overpower her. So she just kind of made an excuse, I'm too high to do anything like this, and then she literally ran away because she was nervous that he was going to pursue her. Wow. And now she's got the fibers in her purse, so it's great. Yeah, matched them up. So this man really ticked off everything they were looking for. He's an electrician, so he works in the realm of construction. He would be familiar with the tools used in the murder. He was a white male aged between 25 and 35. He was married and frustrated with his wife, as evident by some of the things he said to Lano. And he drove around the areas from which all the victims were abducted And he had a blue carpet in his van. What they did not know was that this was also the van that picked up Kathleen Meyer, but the officer never reported that that was the license plate, which is frustrating because I think they could have slammed him with everything. After he had this conversation with Lano between 11.30 and 11.45 that night, roughly, The detectives followed the van around like they told Lano to go home and then they followed his van and he proceeded to for the like hours proceeded to drive around Route 40, Route 13 corridor back and forth for 120 miles. Like he just kept circling the area and they drove a total of 120 miles. Yeah, like he's stalking prey. 100%. It's creepy. Because we also do know that we say 100% all the time. It has been mentioned. 100%. We, we know we say it. It's from... Should, should we tell sure, them? Sure, tell them. It's I from guess. American Scandal. I hope... If you have not watched American Scandal, season one, preferable to season two, on 
Netflix. You have to go watch it. I've never laughed harder in my life. But there's one <laughs> scene where they're doing like a talk with like one of the characters from the show. And he's asked a question that is 100% not true. And he like deadpans it to the camera and he's like 100%. And that's why me and John always say that because we just... Yeah. American Scandal we quote over and over and Not over Not only over that, again. but I, I will have to come out and say that it's, it's the truth. I always said that even before that. Okay, so we just wanted to kind of clarify the 100% thing, but we know it does annoy some people, so we will make an effort to stop saying 100%. <laughs> so later when the plates were run through the system, they came back as belonging to Stephen Brian Pinnell and his wife, Vera Kathy Pinnell. He had lied about his age to Lano. He was really 30 years old, but he was telling the truth about being an electrician. Pinnell and his wife lived in a mobile home in the Glasgow Pines trailer park off of Route 40 with their children. He lived in Bear, close to where the other victims lived and where the bodies had all been dumped. He was looking like a good suspect, exactly like the FBI said. An average Joe. The fibers that Lano had taken from the van were sent in to the FBI to see if they were a match for the fibers found on Kathy DeMora. However, this would take time. So in the meantime, the detectives got permission to tail Pinnell and see if he went anywhere again around Route 40 or did anything suspicious. They watch him and he seems to be like a pretty average guy. He went to work each day. Uh, working on various construction sites as an electrician. And then he went home and went to bed, as average as average can get. And in the end, they end up collecting hours and hours of footage of this man. And, you know, some people did say, based on his size, he was very um, intimidating, definitely imposing. Uh, Stephen Pinnell was 6'5 and 300 pounds. All right, so yeah, he's a big guy. He's a big dude. Yeah. So after about four days of tailing him, they were losing hope that he was their guy. But what they did not know was that when Pinnell went to sleep at night, he would wait hours for his wife and children to get into a deep sleep before he decided to leave. And the police would wait a few hours, and if the lights didn't go back on, they would leave, and they would start tailing him again in the morning. They didn't have approval for a 24-hour surveillance. Well, that's right. You do need approval for that. Yeah. So they didn't know that he would slip off sometimes at night. And they definitely didn't know that on the evening of September 18th, think about this, only four days after he had first tried to um, pick up Officer Lano, he left the trailer park and went out looking for another victim. That night, Pinnell would pick up 22-year-old Michelle Gordon as she was leaving a bar near Route 13, Route 40 split. That night, Pinnell would pick up 22-year-old Michelle Gordon as she was leaving a bar near the Route 13, Route 40 split. Shelley, as she was called by her family, had moved to the United States from England with her family when she was four years old. Once the family moved to Delaware... And Shelley had started high school. Her brother said that she had begun hanging around the wrong crowd and got involved with drugs. 
From there, she became what was described as a wild child. She dropped out of school before she could finish, and she went off on her own. Shelley's brother also said that she was very trusting, too trusting of others, especially in the lifestyle she was leading. Because of her drug habit, the 22-year-old was often homeless and wound up needing to resort to being a sex worker to afford her habit and to survive. On the night of the 18th, Shelley had left the bar that she was at because they had refused to serve her any more beer. From there, a witness saw an unknown male get her a six-pack from the bar and bring it out to her. She took the beer and walked towards the street, where the same witness saw her get into a blue van. Two days later, a 911 call came in from a dump truck operator at 10.30 a.m. He had found the washed-up body of Michelle Gordon on the sharp rocks of the south bank of the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal, near the Summit Bridge. He had started throwing the bodies from bridges. He no longer was dumping them at construction sites. The young girl, the youngest known victim, had been found nude. Her body was badly beaten. Her backside had been aggressively beaten with a hammer. Her buttocks was covered with deep, dark bruising. So he had attacked her backside with a hammer. Wow. That's crazy. Very angry right now and that's terrifying um, we also don't know if anything in his mo changed because obviously kathleen meyer's body was never found and then when they did find margaret thinner decomp had been so advanced that they would never be able to determine what happened but somewhere in between he got more and more aggressive but we'll never know how aggressive he got with those two victims or what he truly did to them i mean i think it's safe to say that he would become progressively more violent towards his victims. He was definitely going into a frenzied mode. Yeah. Yeah. She had been restrained at her wrists and ankles. The killer had been a lot more aggressive with her. And it was most likely the torture would have continued and would have been probably just as bad or worse. And she would have been further mutilated and strangled and then hit on the head the same as the other victims However, the medical examiner reported that Michelle Gordon had cocaine in her system. And because she had drugs in her system, specifically cocaine, her heart had not been able to withstand the amount of torture she was enduring. So she died of heart failure before he could torture her any further than what he did with the beating of her backside and the ligature marks. So after her death, The killer completely removed her left nipple and made um, deep cuts with a knife going from like down the back of her legs, like from like her buttock area all the way down to the back of her knees. This is so disturbing. Yeah. Her family was devastated. Her mother had wanted a good life for her daughter and now... Like all the other women, she would never get her second chance, which is just so sad. It is sad. I believe we can say that the investigation in this case has been very good. They had sought knowledge from the FBI when they didn't know it themselves. They were working a decoy investigation in addition to their own investigation during the day. 
So when another woman suffered at the hands of this man, while they were tailing him, they felt responsible. The police 100% felt responsible for the death of Michelle Gordon. He had done this on their watch, and they truly believed it was Pinnell. So they decided that even if they think he's asleep, they need to stay on him. Like, they need to do a 24-hour watch on him. I think that that's your best bet. I mean, you can't let this guy continue to, to do this. And they know, they have a really good um, idea that it is him. Yeah, they, they know. I think that if if that one officer would have come forward and said, this is the license plate that Kathleen Meyer, the van that she'd gotten into, they could have arrested him. I think you're right. Which is why that not being done is such a big deal. And cost Michelle Gordon her life. Yeah. The day Michelle's body was found, they continued to, and with new vigor, follow Pinnell. He went to a Pep Boys and got his car serviced. Once he left, they went into the Pep Boys store and asked what service he had had done to his vehicle. And they said he got all new tires. Well, this is perfect, the detectives were thinking, because one piece of evidence we have are tire marks at the scene where the second body was dumped. So they wanted the old tires. And the Pep Boys obviously gave them the old tires that they had removed from Pinnell's van. And they sent it to the FBI for testing as well because they wanted to see if these would match the impressions that were present at Kathy DeMauro's discovery. When all the FBI tests came back, the detective's suspicions were confirmed. The fibers were a match for Pinnell's van and the tires were a match for the impressions at the crime scene. Pinnell, from that point on, was under 24-hour surveillance, but they wanted to get him completely. So the new plan was to plant a wire into his van. The team went through timing drills to make sure they could install the wire with, within one hour. And then once they finally got that drill down, they went forward with their plan. Wow. See, the thing here is that they only have circumstantial evidence. It's not enough to get them. It's not enough to get them. So that's why they want to put the wire in. Pinnell was someone who drove recklessly all the time. So they knew they could get him on speeding. And they did. He was pulled over and arrested for reckless driving and traffic violations on I-495. In the time that he had to go to court for the issue, they drove his van to a secluded area and installed the wire. Like they had confiscated his van because it was reckless driving and he had to see a judge immediately. That's actually smart. Yes. That's the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. So they drove his van to a secluded area and installed the wire. They also took pictures and many samples from within the van. And for about a month, they listened in on every conversation, but they didn't hear anything that was ever of any interest to them or could help them with their investigation. And then on October 23rd, remember Margaret Finner's body body hasn't even been found yet. They heard a voice of a little girl on the wire and she said, what are you doing, daddy? And then they heard Stephen Pinnell say, I'm exploring. After they heard Pinnell say that, a few moments later, the wires and listening device were cut. He'd found the wire. 
Oh, oh my God. He knew they were onto him. Yeah. But because the jig was up, they had to move in immediately. A warrant was obtained to search his home. And in the middle of the night, the Pinnell trailer was raided. Good. Yeah. The trailer, the van, another vehicle owned by the couple, and two sheds on the property were searched. In one of the sheds, there was a locking bar on the inside of the shed. So if someone was inside and the bar was down, no one else could get in. And it was inside that shed, so basically he could lock himself in. And it was inside that shed where they found a lot of BDSM porn. One video was of particular interest to investigators. Things are going to get weird here, guys. And I apologize for the next three paragraphs that I have to read in advance. <laughs> okay. A video entitled The Taming of Rebecca um, was of the most importance to them and relevance to them because this video had been queued up to a specific part in the tape where a man is forcefully using a safety pin to pierce the nipple of a young woman who's being restrained at her wrists and ankles. So that sounds familiar to the torture that he would do to these women. Yeah. So he's recreating the scene. The production company that made this video and many others was actually raided by the NYPD. It was called Avon Productions, and they were put out of business in 1983, a year after this video was produced. Um, the owner of the production company could literally have an episode all on his own because he was suspected in the murder of his wife and two others. He later went on to kill someone during um, the commission of a crime, which was like holding up a convenience store. But I digress. Crazy town. From the home, authorities seized tools, zip ties, stained foam padding from under the van's carpet, and um, additional blood samples from the van. From that point on, the surveillance was obvious. And Renee Lano joined in on the surveillance. So now she's no longer working as a decoy, but she's helping with the surveillance. They did a really good job of always including her in the investigation. And now it's kind of put on her resume of the, this amazing work that she did, which is going to allow her to be promoted easily in the future. So that was very nice that they did that for her. They allowed her to stay in on the investigation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And... um. At this point, Pinnell starts, like, playing with them. He's real smart-ass with police. He would walk up to them and say, well, these are my plans for the day. And then he returned the listening device to them and said, hey, thought you guys were looking for this. And he would even have his kids go up and, like, talk to the, the police officers that were surveilling him. It's so weird. Yeah. So it was days after the body of Margaret Finner had been found. Um, but as I said before, they knew that Pinnell had tortured and killed her, but it was impossible to tie her to the other murders because her body had been so badly decomposed. The detectives had a soft spot for Margaret's father, who, now remember, they'd been looking for her for 11 weeks. Her father had given them hell during the three months that his daughter was missing. He did his own investigation. He didn't think the detectives were working hard enough. Eventually, the detectives and their hard work finally wins over Margaret Finner's father, and it's when they're doing the decoy work. So they he sees the decoy, too, and he is, like, 
trying to warn her it's not safe it's not safe i'm looking for somebody um you shouldn't be here and then the detectives have to roll up next to him and be like can you go we're like this is our decoy (laughs) (laughs) and that's when he finally realized like okay they are doing the work here and eventually he does build a friendship with the two detectives that really are truly working 20 hours a day to solve this case they were working very hard and um when margaret finner's body was found the detectives arranged for margaret's funeral to be paid for by the state's victims compensation fund and the detectives themselves plus a few prosecutors paid for and delivered christmas gifts to margaret's children that december i mean that's really nice yeah and now that detectives knew Pennell was dumping the bodies in the bay They assumed that is why they never found Kathleen Meyer's body. It's most likely that her body was brought out to sea by a current. Based on all the collected materials from his home and the positive matches for all the material that had been sent to the FBI, the investigators got a warrant for the arrest of Stephen Pinnell. On November 29, 1988, a year to the date of the murder of Shirley Ellis, Police swarmed the Pinnell house and arrested him at 11.30 p.m. He was charged with the murder of Catherine DeMauro because they had the most physical evidence to support his connection with her murder. When he was arrested, he said to the arresting officer, I guess it's time. And the officer said yes. I thought so, he responded. So who was Stephen Pinnell? It seems that this man was, as best described by his attorney, an enigma, a true sociopath, which is rare and terrifying. On the surface, he was nice, respectful, and intelligent man. He would go out of his way to do favors for people, and he projected himself to be a wonderful father. However, just under the surface, there was a whole nother man. Neighbors revealed that they would often hear him screaming at his wife and children, There was also a story that came out from a former friend um, where they said Pinnell couldn't pull the trigger when he was duck hunting and he would never even hurt an animal. But still, he was the man who tortured and brutally murdered five women that we know of. So he is very good about putting on a facade. Pinnell was born on November 22nd, 1957 in Delaware. His father was an accountant and his mother was a homemaker who also served as den mother while he was in the Cub Scouts. He lived a completely healthy and loving upbringing. He did have some trouble early on in school, but nothing significant. He, fun fact, attended the same Catholic high school as one of the detectives that was working his case from the beginning. Pinnell, as a child, and then even after high school, had been fixated on becoming a police officer. However, he failed the physical part of the entrance exam. It was the pull-ups. He was a big guy. It's always the pull-ups. They're they're hard. They are hard. And this is actually very common. Serial killers obsessed with the police or wanting to become a police officer and not being able to. So what's the alternative? serial killing it's crazy it's weird that that's some sort of correlation very very common thing yeah see jerry brudos for that one but now he had been caught and arrested and the women of delaware could rest easy again knowing that the serial killer was no longer prowling their highways 
Within days of his arrest, he was charged with first-degree murders of Shirley Ellis and Michelle Gordon. Pinnell never spoke to police about what he did or why he did what he did. He remained silent. Later, he would be connected with the murder of Kathleen Meyer because blood was found in his van and using DNA samples from Kathleen's parents they were able to determine that it had belonged to her. So although her body was never discovered, they were able to tie her to the murders because her blood was in the van. Okay, so we actually have two pieces. Uh, we have the eyewitness testimony of her getting in the van Correct. when the cop didn't turn in the license plate, and, the and now the blood. That's I mean, that's more than enough. That's, that's more physical than enough, evidence. Yeah. So Margaret Finner, because of the state of decomposition, could never be connected through physical evidence. Her And blood was also never found in the van. But her father, Robert Barlow, the guy who, like, cruised up to the decoy, he said it perfectly. When in court, he said, I know he murdered my daughter, and God knows he murdered my daughter. During the trial, the tactic of the prosecution was to try and get under Pinnell's skin. They could not let the jury think of him as an average Joe with a home, a family, a job, and a happy demeanor. They wanted the jury to see him. They wanted them to see his dark side. And the prosecution spared no expense to convict him. They had the interior of the van reconstructed in court. Um, then DNA from Kathy DeMora was found in the van. And a hair from Michelle Gordon was also found in the van. Just so that's the physical evidence that tied them to. I mean, it's pretty good uh, physical evidence here. Yes. And they spared no expense in sending all of this stuff to the FBI to be tested because you have to think it's the late 80s. So when I say DNA is in its infancy, it's barely there. So the fact that they were able to send it to the best labs in the country was the only reason they were able to get that physical evidence there. But it also means the victims know nothing about DNA. Um, so it was really hard for them to try and explain this whole DNA thing to the jury. Yeah. So John Douglas, who we mentioned before, the FBI profiler, author of Mindhunter, and inspiration for Holden Ford on the show Mindhunter, testified during the trial. He was testifying about how the murders were connected and the psychology of a serial killer. In regards to Pinnell's crimes, he said... These cases are motivated not by sex. The general theme is domination and power. This particular type of serial killer wants his victims alive to suffer and go through pain. The binding of the victims showed the subject wanted to spend time with the victims before killing them. The bindings are to manipulate, dominate, and control. The jury was fascinated. We feel you guys. We feel you. But things took a brutal turn for them when they were shown the horrific pictures of the discovery of the bodies and then the autopsy photos. And they were all visibly shaken after seeing the damage that he did to these women. Well, you also oh, have to remember, God. they set out to prove that this wasn't some average Joe family man that was just working. You know what I mean? 
Oh, a hundred percent. They did. Yeah, like you said. See, they sp- I said it again, a hundred percent. But they, <laughs> they did. Yeah, they spared no expense, and honestly, you can tell F- the fact that you have the FBI and the analysis unit literally testifying to explain this to the ju- uh, to the jury. That's that's massive. Yeah. This isn't just like I mean, I'm sure like they would feel like a certain way if it was a cop, but we're talking about the FBI here. You say you know, look how much evidence we have. Take a look at the pictures, the eyewitness testimony, the 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 you know the FBI being put on uh, you know uh, up on the stand there. Like there's a lot here. So I don't know how at the end of this you're not going to convict this guy. You know, like it's right. kind of it's uh, an cut open and, dry. and shut case. Yeah, that's how I feel anyway. The only reason why this is going to trial, I mean, it's the evidence is overwhelming, but he's still denying that he did any of this. Right. A majority of the 126 witnesses that testified were experts in the early field of DNA testing to try and explain to the jury. But the one that was the most intense, even more so than John Douglas, was Stephen Pinnell himself. He took the stand. Oh, he did? Mm-hmm. On the stand, he admitted to picking up sex workers on the Route 40 area. He alleged that he had paid for sex with Catherine DeMauro and Michelle Gordon, but denied meeting or knowing Shirley Ellis. He said the reason Kathy DeMorrow's blood was found in his van was because she was menstruating at the time. The prosecution later roasted this in their closing. That's not the kind of blood that was found, you loser. And it was a large mass amount of blood that could have never been made by menstrual blood and menstrual blood has a different composition than normal blood. Such yeah, a sorry, dude. Man. <laughs> sorry, dude. You're misinformed. <laughs> you're, you're an idiot. So they deliberated the jury for seven days. And on Thanksgiving Day, isn't it so funny how everything comes full circle? Because this is now two years, um, almost two years to the day of the murder of Shirley Ellis. So he's arrested one year after he's going to get his conviction two years after. And they find him guilty of first degree murder in the case of Shirley Ellis and Catherine DeMorrow. When it came to the case of Michelle Gordon, the jury said they could not reach a unanimous decision. And that was because her blood wasn't found in the van, but a hair. Yeah. I mean, I get it. They, but I know she, the, the the fact is she was in the van. If her hair is in the van, she was in that van with him. And look what's happened. And look what's happened to the other yeah. victims. So to say that, I don't know, I, that doesn't sit right. But, uh, you know, well, it wasn't sure. they didn't say he was not guilty. They said right. they could not reach a decision. Yeah. So because of that, a mistrial was declared. Jeez. Oh, my God. Just on Michelle Gordon. The other two he got a conviction on. So that the case of just Michelle Gordon would have to be retried. Margaret Lynn Finner's father, the one, you know, she couldn't be tied physically to any of the murders or Pinnell in any way. But he's the one who said, I know that you killed my daughter. He said as soon as he was, he said as soon as he had heard the conviction that he called his wife, his really his ex-wife, but the mother of Margaret and said, I'm going to go to the cemetery and tell Lynn, which is just so devastating. Yeah, it is. It's sad. You know, look how many families were affected by this. It's, it's insane. It's crazy. 
Now, I know I mentioned to you that Pinnell was later indicted with the murder of Kathleen Meyer when her blood was later found in the van. So when he got retried for the murder of Michelle Gordon in August of 1991, because it had been a mistrial, they added the murder of Kathleen Meyer. So now in 1991, he's supposed to go to trial for two more murders, the one of Kathleen Meyer and Michelle Gordon retrial. Stephen Pinnell pled no contest to both murders if the state promised to execute him within 48 hours. He wanted to die. Wow. He was still denying that he did anything. He was upholding his innocence. But he said, if you think I'm guilty of these horrible things, then just kill me. And the judge was like, oh, we want to. But we just, 48 hours would be ridiculous. We can't do something like that within 48 hours. But don't worry, buddy. We want to. We, we The state of Delaware wants to execute you. So they say we'll change the deadline as long as you continue to plead no contest and he pled no contest but still like outwardly towards the media he said he was innocent and on march 14th 1992 stephen brian pinnell was executed by way of lethal injection the state's first execution in 46 years wow Officer Renee Lano was present at the execution. She had had nightmares about Pinnell, nightmares where he would escape and get his revenge on her. So she said it was kind of um, cathartic to be there. Um, In 1989, she suffered a paralyzing illness related to the stress she was under working that case, being a decoy, and she was also going through a divorce at that time. So there was a lot going on for her. The families of the victims were barred from attending um, because what had happened at other recent executions in other states, the victims' families went there but then caused a scene. So the state of Delaware was advised by the federal courts to not allow the victims' families to attend the execution to avoid scenes, basically. Although I think it should have been their right. If they wanted them there. But that's just my opinion. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, But Pinnell would die the way his victims did. Tied down. Helpless. Except he was spared the torture. Yeah. He never revealed what he did with the body of Kathleen Meyer. And a lot of people were holding out hope that that's what he would say on his, like, that would be his deathbed confession. What happened to Kathleen Meyer. But he never revealed it. He yeah. didn't have any last words. Well, I think it's also because just like the BAU, when they profiled this guy, mm. they would say that, you know, that a lot of this is, you know, for power and to feel like he's in yes. control. And he still had control and with his, that. Yes. His control was like still there mm-hmm. even at the end for himself. You know, that's what he yeah. was holding on to that. Now, there's one more crazy detail here. Okay. Years after his execution, his wife reached out to the state police and asked if they still had the van, the van where he killed all of these women. Okay. They said, yes, we still have the van, but we don't need it any longer. So like technically legally, she has a right to the van because she and her husband were the owners of this van. Right. 
She said one of her children was getting their driver's license and they needed a vehicle. So she got the van back and the van where five women were tortured and murdered by their father was a van that this child now drove around in. What? Yeah. That is so sick. Why would you want any reminder of these cruel and senseless killings? Why do you even want that? Especially for your child. Well, that too. But just in general, though, like, why? why? I don't know. Maybe so she was weird. just desperate for money, but that's still, I would never. No. Don't care. That's I'd crazy. Take a, I would take a massive loss. I would rather drive a bike anywhere I needed to go. I'd rather walk. Okay. All right. No wheels. No wheels. Forget that. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy, actually. Yeah. Okay. So these victims should not be forgotten. Shirley Ellis, Catherine DeMauro, Michelle Gordon, Kathleen Meyer, and Margaret Finner. Although their last few moments of life were difficult, may they rest in peace now. Just so sad. It is. This case was crazy hard to do research on because it was so, like, terrifying. I don't know. It was just Because cr- it is essentially your worst fear is that you're going to be completely helpless at the hand of a sociopath. And yeah. that's what how these women had to die. It's so sad. I had a feeling that this case was going to be a little tumultuous because when I every time I kept walking uh, you know to use the restroom or whatever to go into my uh into to work out or whatever every time i would come out i would just see you and it looked like you were just crying i was and i had to keep <laughs> checking on you to see if you were okay um so this explains it i mean yeah. because this was brutal like th- i mean this is this is insane this is a very good case but just it's very it's sad crazy but i was spot on with with the uh uh, with the electrician. With the electrician thing, the construction thing. You're doing yeah. really good. The FBI, I'm here. If you need me. If you need John, he is available for you on the weekends. Yes. When I'm we're not recording. Not recording. Can't yes. take away from our, okay. our fans, okay? <laughs> but I am available Monday through Friday. No, you work. Yeah, yeah, but I'm, I'm done early. Okay. He's well, done early. Monday through Friday. Anyway. Okay, so before we go, we do want to thank our newest supporters on patreon thank you for becoming patrons we so appreciate everything that you do for us this podcast would not be able to run without any of you so thank you to Mackenzie redner linnell lanton jessica darling casey jablonski sequoia shemus melissa fogel michelle dingle courtney wagner lauren boss ashley fincannon Stan Likowski, Timberly, Courtney Michael, Tara Haynes, Gloria, Nicole Garau, Jenny Martin, Summer the Human, Tanya Collins, and Ellie Morgan. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We can't wait to give you an episode in another two weeks. And until then, seriously, especially after this case, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.